Please be seated. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. I want you to know that I feel a whole lot better than I sound. I don't think it's a cold. I think it's sinus. <clears throat> and so it has given me the deep, rich voice I've always dreamed of, but I'm only borrowing for a day. So it is a different voice than I had in the first service. <clears throat> this is a little more life to it. First service was entirely gravelly. So if you were to listen to the tape of the first service and it sounds like there's a lot of static, it has nothing to do with the microphone. It was just coming out of me. But nevertheless, we have the privilege of studying this uh, great letter, which we've been doing from the beginning of this year, in a series we've titled Freedom, because that's the theme of this letter. This letter has been used through history to change lives. Martin Luther, in reading this, recognized the futility of all of his labors and sacrifices, and was broken and recognized the beauty of the gift of Jesus Christ, which actually spurred and fueled his labors in, towards Reformation. John Wesley, reading Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians, in his own words, was converted, felt strangely warm, all about what Jesus has done. And my hope is that as we have been looking at this letter, that your life also is changed, whether it's to relay a foundation that you already have, whether it is to confront you about ideas that perhaps are not consistent with the truth of the gospel, or perhaps if you are like me, it's to remind you of what is true, and yet by example find out that what I know to be true and what I feel are totally different all too often, and reminding me not only can I, but I must rely on Jesus Christ. Paul shifts gears here as we come to chapter 5. He's been laying that foundation, perhaps for some of you, ad nauseum, thinking, all right, I get it already. Let's move on. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. But Paul, there's a reason that he continues for that. I suspect the fact that he dwells so long on it is because he wants to emphasize just by its sheer repetition that we are so prone to want to move on and that we should never move on. Beginning in chapter 5 and through chapter 6, Paul, building and in no way moving from that foundation, begins to explain to us the practical implications of the way we live our lives if we are rooted in the promise of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And that's what we consider this morning as we come to our text. Before we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll begin our reading, chapter 5, verse 1. Our Father, we do come with great thanksgiving to you. That you, who is the Lord of all things, who spoke all things into existence, just by your very word, is also speaking to us. Therefore, that which you have created by your word, you are also creating us to be like Christ. So I pray that by your spirit, you would speak to us, that you would open our ears as well as our hearts, our minds to understand what it is you have to speak to us. And may we not do so begrudgingly, but listening for your voice, despite my somewhat irritating voice today, that we would hear what you would have to say to the children you love. Bless us, Lord. We pray in the name of Christ, the Word incarnated. Amen. Galatians 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, 
I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And the Lord bless us with understanding of his word. This balmy weather has you beginning to think about your summer reading list. You're looking for a good biography. One I would commend to you is titled Unshakable Faith by John Perry. Unshakable Faith is the story of George Washington Carver and Booker T. Washington, two amazing men who were both born into slavery, that last generation of slavery, and yet who overcame incredible obstacles and hardships to not only excel in their own respective fields of science and in education, but they also empowered many others to be able to thrive in this life as well. As these uh, two men took up their, their life's tasks, they began Tuskegee Institute to educate others who were born into slavery but who were now free. And throughout this book, and you get to peek into uh, the minds of these men, Booker T. Washington over and over again mused and stated a very common issue, very common problem that the students that they were investing their lives in had been experiencing. And what Washington says as he comes to the understanding of the problem is this, it is one thing to be free, it is a whole other thing to live free. And so Booker T. Washington who was educated here on the peninsula at now is Hampton University, then Hampton Institute. Um, that's why he founded Tuskegee Institute, and he dedicated his life to training those who had once been slaves and yet were, who were now free. But he also realized something else that comes out as he shares his story, that while his primary passion was to invest in those who had been freed in order that they would be able to flourish within their freedom, he also said that he realized that he needed to also fight against systems and against people who were proponents of systems that would continue to keep enslaved those people who had been declared free ever since Abraham Lincoln on January 1st, 1863, issued the Emancipation Proclamation. When Lincoln declared that the slaves were free, some 20,000 
experienced it immediately. Over the course of years, there were 100,000, ultimately 4 million slaves that were set free. All of them were legally free at the time that Lincoln issued the decree, but only as the Union Army continued to advance, only as the war came to a conclusion, did people begin to experience what they had already been declared. And even after that, and to some extent even still, there are systems and there are people who, propon who are proponents of systems who would continue to oppress and keep down people who are free and yet who feel enslaved. And so, Carver, uh, George, uh, so Booker T. Washington gave his life in order to free, empower, and protect people who are free. In this lesson to, letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul is doing both of the things that Booker T. Washington was doing at Tuskegee Institute. Because as Paul was helping believers to understand the freedom they have in Christ, that the moment that they received Christ, they were declared free. He's also teaching them what it means to live in freedom by faith alone rather than being enslaved. But in addition to encouraging and empowering people to live in the freedom that Christ has purchased for them and has declared when he said on the cross, it is finished. Paul also needs to fight against systems and people who perpetuate systems that would continually put in bondage and put back into bondage those people whom Christ has set free. Here's what theologian John Stott says about the situation in Galatia as we're considering what Paul writes this morning. Our former state is portrayed as slavery. Jesus Christ as liberator Conversion as an act of emancipation, and the Christian life as a life of freedom. This freedom is not primarily a freedom from sin, but rather from the law. What Christ has done in liberating us is not so much to set our will free, but our conscience free from the guilt of sin. The Christian freedom he describes is freedom of conscience, freedom from the tyranny of the law, the dreadful struggle to keep the law with a view of winning favor with God. It is a freedom of acceptance with God and of access to God through Jesus Christ. So Stott beautifully summarizes both the circumstance and the promise, the message that Paul is proclaiming. And as we look at this text this morning, as Paul is making the transition, Paul begins essentially pretty simply. He just declares it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. That's an important statement for us to recognize because it's the heart of what Paul was saying. It reminds us that freedom is not just a means to life, but it's an object itself. The whole purpose of redeeming, of, of, of setting us free, was so that we can experience joy that only happens in freedom. Freedom is a means to that joy, but freedom is also the goal. People are redeemed so that they would be free and no longer enslaved. And, and as enslaved, have things that would shackle and stifle their own joy. The apostle also declares in, in this, as he's speaking, and as he's writing, and throughout this passage, that our freedom can also be lost. Paul's not talking about a, a loss of salvation here. He's just talking about people who are free in Christ, which is our salvation, but can live the same way that those who were slaves who were set free, still feeling the oppression, still feeling that they 
were in danger of still feeling inferior, still feeling that somehow they must measure up. And so Paul is addressing those things in this letter and even in these passages with some very intense, passionate instructions. But as we look at the instructions, I want to ask a question that's going to permeate that I want you to continue to ask as we consider each of the instructions, and we'll address the question at the end. And the question is this, what would it be, or what was it that motivated Paul to speak with such passion and intensity, and in some cases, as we're going to see here, some serious offensiveness as he's giving these instructions? Why would Paul not only declare this message, but why does he do it in the way that he does? I want you to listen to the instructions that Paul gives. There are several. There's a handful. We're going to look at it really in three, in three kind of categories here, just so that we are able to follow the text. Paul begins in telling us first that because we realize, because he's helping us to understand, the freedom we have can be lost. Even if we are declared free, we cannot feel free. We can be enslaved all over again. And so Paul declares in verse 1, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. There's a demonstration that Paul is saying is we need to stand firm. And the words there are essentially fighting words. He's reminding us that if we're going to remain free, we need to fight to remain free. You've got to plant your feet solidly, standing firm, so that you're not moved about and shaken. The image that comes to my mind at times is standing on the shore at the ocean with your feet in the water as the waves come pounding in. You stand firm because otherwise you can be knocked aside. And even if the waves themselves don't knock your side, the feet, your feet being on sand are very shaky and it can, the sand can be taken out from under you. And so there is a need. Paul's saying with that in mind in terms of this life, with our feet firmly grounded on the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ, make sure you're standing firm on the gospel, on the promise, on the freedom that's already been declared for you, the freedom that you ought to experience. And don't allow yourself to have that yoke of slavery put upon you again. The issue of yoke is not something, unless you are a rancher, that you probably deal with a lot. But a yoke is essentially that harness that they would put on oxen or horses that would attach them to the plow. Sometimes they would be yoked together with others on a team. Sometimes it would simply be the the one uh, collar that would be placed upon them. And then the horse or the ox would plow the field for you. Sometimes you will see movies, or perhaps if you've had animals, you'll see some that uh, have the animals that have other ideas at the moment. So when you go to put the yoke on them, they'll pull their head back, they'll jerk, they'll fight, because they don't want that uncomfortable thing upon them. And Paul's instruction here is not only just to stand firm, make sure you're on solid ground, but don't allow anybody to put that collar on you, because that collar itself is slavery. So he's saying fight, move back, do what is necessary to not actually experience the harness of slavery in your life. And then he offers these instructions, which are interesting. Uh, First is is just even within that phrase itself. If you look at at verse 1, there's a word there that's important, but it's easily overlooked. But it also reminds us of the significance of this passage, of this whole letter, of the gospel itself. Because Paul says, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Now, again, it's significant because we need to stop and say, who is it that he's writing to? Who is he talking to? The issue that he's addressing, as we've we've already made clear, is the whole issue of legalism 
performance, obedience to the law as the way that you stand before God or you gain God's favor. It's a problem that we see the Jewish people and understand that the Jewish people would struggle with. But the Galatians were not Jewish people. That's the whole point of the letter. The Galatians had actually been pagans. And what Paul seems to be suggesting here, which is quite astounding, when he says, don't be enslaved again, is that essentially, religious moralism, even if it comes from a biblical source, and pagan lifestyle are essentially the same. That it's the gospel itself that is entirely different. Because the whole issue, the problems, where they were enslaved as pagans is this. Somehow, pagans have to appease their gods. So they go through rituals, and they do what they think will make their gods happy, or at least satisfied, or at least ignore them. They never know if they have done enough. They never have the security, because they never know, and particularly in most pagan religions, it's because their gods are unstable and capricious. And so you might do something, and your god's in a bad mood. And so it doesn't matter what you do, you never have that sense of security. And Paul is saying to the Galatians, and to us through the Galatians, that if we measure our relationship with God or measure our relationship with others on the basis of how well we perform, it is the same exact slavery as they had experienced before. It's still a performance religion. And performance religion enslaves you to a set of standards that you can never measure up to, can never know if it's enough, and never know how you're going to be responded to. And so Paul is saying, look, don't allow that slavery to be put on you again. And in so doing, he's showing us that what sometimes is very well-intentioned and very conscientious desire to keep God's law is actually not as faithful to Christianity as it is an expression not unlike paganism. And Paul moves on saying an argument there, and he says that if you do, there are certain losses. Let's pick up here in verse 2. Paul, Look, I, Paul, say that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, we need to stop there just for a second, just so that we have an understanding. The issue for the Galatians is circumcision. That was the issue of the day. The Galatians, having been pagan, not having been Jewish, had not been circumcised. You had some people, if you look at Acts chapter 15, you, you understand what's going on. Acts 15.1, Acts 15.5 tell us that there were certain people who came amongst the Gentile people and told them that unless they experienced circumcision, unless they became Jewish, they could not be saved. They could have no relationship with God, and they could not be part of the fellowship of the people of God. That's what Acts tells us, and that's essentially what was going on in Galatia. And specifically, they were saying that Gentiles who had not been, um, had not been circumcised, they need to experience uh, circumcision. Now, what we need to understand is the issue itself is, is not so much circumcision. Because otherwise, we, we would say, okay, we got that. But it's really not a particularly controversial issue today. I've never read a book, never read an article where somebody is suggesting that we ought to reestablish circumcision uh, as a part of our church. It's just people, it's not on anybody's mind. Circumcision was the issue for the day, but it is representative of other things. Circumcision, in this case, was uh, representative of really what people believed about God and how that they were to relate to God. It's a prototype of a, of a works religion. If you do this because God commanded this, then God will accept you and you will be part of his covenant family. But it's a misunderstanding of what circumcision was established to be in the first place. Circumcision does point to something beyond itself. It points to the promise of God. 
Circumcision was to be applied to every male child born in the household of believers. To mark them as belonging to the household of God. Not because of anything they have done. Not because of anything God saw that they would do. But simply because God had promised to call a people and make them a people for himself. And he would be faithful to them even when they were faithless. And so it points to a covenant, a covenant of grace. It is a mark that symbolized something that was greater. The one who would come and by whom we would all be marked. But it was a ritual that continued to be embraced, perhaps understandably so. And Paul is saying to them, if you are, allow yourself to be marked with circumcision, and he would be saying to us, if you allow yourself to be marked by anything other than just Christ, if there's anything that you think that requires Jesus plus whatever that issue may be, and that issue may be teetotaling, it may be engagement and mission, it may be any number of things that are all very good, Paul would be saying to you, if, if you are adding anything here, don't do it. It simply puts you back into slavery. And then he says for anyone who would wear that yoke of slavery, that's where we experience loss. In verse, uh, in verse 2, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And so there's the first loss. He's saying if Christ, if you allow yourself to add anything to the promise of Christ, then Jesus is of no value to you at all. That seems a little odd. I mean, it seems a little str uh, strong. I mean, Christ has inestimable value. And it only seems to make sense as if you have something of inestimable value and then you add something to it, you still have inestimable, even if what you try to add to it is found to be worthless, right? So how can adding these kinds of works actually devalue Christ? Yesterday, Carolyn and I went to the Muscarella Museum to see the Da Vinci exhibit that we've been wanting to see. I'm not, I was struck by several things, uh, first of which is I'm not particularly sophisticated enough to appreciate the uh, work that was done there because they looked like a bunch of well-done drawings. And so in one sense, I was struck all the more by the historicity, standing there recognizing that these works, lives right before me, are over 500 years old, are the prototype studied by those who understand and are gifted in art and are appreciated by those who are gifted in art as being beyond even their ability to replicate. And so while I wasn't, you know, if I was going to pay $30 again, I would want to see pictures that I know what they are and all that kind of stuff that are at least, you know, put in some color um, so that I know what that guy's supposed to look like. But my lack of sophistication aside, Imagine that in order to express the appreciation I did have for them, just to make sure that you knew and anybody that came later knew that I'd been there and that I appreciated those things, I decided to add my own little mark and so I would sign my name right under Leonardo's. <laughs> this priceless piece of art, how much would it be worth if I wrote my name on it? Or maybe even worse, if I saw this celebrated piece of art and decided I would add my own little doodle to it as well. After I got hauled off by the police and the art world decried me and 
hung me an effigy for defacing and devaluing these beautiful and priceless pieces of art. The pieces themselves, if they could not be restored and get my work off of it, would be declared totally vandalized, ruined, and if not worthless, worth nowhere near what they are worth on their own. Now, some of you might also recognize that I have absolutely no artistic talent. So just think of somebody, whether maybe Rob Wooten, if you've seen his work, Rob does tremendous work. So what if Rob, whose art is, is beautiful as well, he went, in his appreciation, he started drawing his very gifted artwork on top of da Vinci's work. How much would da Vinci's priceless art be worth then? Rob would be right next to me in the jail cell. Also accused, despite his God-given talent and his gifts and his best efforts of having defaced and devalued because you do not improve the work of the master. And Paul is saying the same thing for us. If we think that we are going to add anything to what Christ has done, offered to us freely in the gospel by saying, okay, Christ of inestimable value, what can it hurt if I add my own work to his work? Paul is saying, if you think you're going to add your work to the work of the master, you actually find that Christ is of no value. You've devalued the very gift that he's given you through his work accomplished on the cross. And Paul says you lose by trying to add. And Paul doesn't stop there. It's not the only loss that we experience as we pick up again in verse 3. I testify again, every man who accepts circumcision, that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So we're going to look primarily here at, at verse 3 or verse 4. Paul says that not only do we lose the value of Christ, we lose the connection with Christ, we lose the connection with grace. Paul's word here is very intentionally chosen. We're talking about circumcision. He's saying, okay, you wanna cut something in a surgical procedure, I'm gonna tell you, if you allow yourself to do that, you're not cutting what you think you're cutting. What you're cutting is the cord to Christ, the cord that connects us to Christ's grace. See, if we are going to choose to live and measure ourselves, on the basis of our performance, even at all, even if subordinate to Christ. Paul says, the adding of your work cuts, off, cuts you off from grace. Again, he's not talking about lack of salvation here. Jonah had the same kind of epiphany. If you read the story of Jonah, you know that he had a few days to think to himself. So he was sitting in the beach, under the beach, um, under the water. And Jonah took him a while and said, you know, those who cling to uh, worthless idols, they forfeit a grace that could be theirs. In other words, when we cling to something that is of no ultimate value, by clinging to those things, we are not experiencing the benefit of the gift that comes from God and comes from God alone. And Paul says we not only lose the value of Christ, we lose connection with Christ. We lose connection to his grace. And he points out something that is very commonly overlooked as he's, he's speaking about this. Very common misunderstanding for people who think that they're going to be measured by the law or they're going to add their own work to the work of the master. Paul says this, as, as we've just read. 
Every man who accepts circumcision or any man who adds to the work of the master, he's obligated to keep the whole law. See, in our minds, no matter what we know, we just have this idea that if I'm going to be good, I keep the law and what God requires is the old college try. I give my best effort, I do the best I can. We even have posters in Christian bookstores that will tell you that that's the truth. You know, I've seen you know, a little cat hanging from a tree. And the title says, God just asks that you do your best and then he will do all the rest, right? You've seen that? Only problem is it may be in the Christian bookstore, it's just not in the Bible. Because what God is saying, and Paul is saying very clearly in this, is God says, it's me, it's me alone. If you choose to go another avenue, you, have, you can do that, but I'm no longer part of this package. We assume somehow that that's an unfair deal. And yet we deal with that every day in our day-to-day -day lives. If you were to go buy a car and you say, no, I don't really need the whole car. I really like the chassis on my car. I just need some tires and a steering wheel. The car dealer is going to say, we don't sell portions of cars. Go to the junkyard. That's the only place you're going to find stuff. You either buy the car or you don't. You don't buy a portion of the car. If you're looking for a house and you talk to the realtor and you see a house that is of your dreams, and you see it and you say, I love it, but we don't need five bedrooms. So we're just going to buy the three bedrooms and we just won't use the other two, but we're not going to pay for them either. I don't think you're going to be living in that house. You either buy something in whole or you go to something else. And God, whether it seems right to us or not, is saying to us, you either receive Christ in whole or you go another direction. And it's not an unfair deal because what God is saying is, you can't do what you think you're going to do, but I will do it all. And we want to say, I want to do something. And Paul is saying, recognize that tendency in yourself. and Hear what God's offer is, and then you decide which matters. But if you choose the way that you're inclined to, if you choose the way that people are trying to encourage you to go, you actually forfeit the very thing that you think you've got. And Paul continues as he's speaking there, and he sums this section up. Because... He also says in verse 5, for through the Spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly work for the hope of righteousness, right? So we're sitting here and we're, you know, Jesus is coming, we've been saved, and so we spend our days working it out. Does anybody have a Bible that says that? If so, you need a different Bible. Because it doesn't say we eagerly work. It says we eagerly wait. And the reason we wait is because the thing that we are waiting for, the righteousness, full righteousness, is not something that we can produce no matter how hard we work. And our religious efforts, no matter how well-intentioned they may be, don't actually draw us to Christ. They drive us further from Christ. And Paul reaffirms this foundation in this case in saying, stand firm and fight for your freedom. Why does Paul say that? We'll get to that in a moment. Paul points something else out that's important for us to do as well. He says that we ought to, he reminds us to, to recognize the fragility of our own freedom. Now, as we move into verse 7, we see Paul affirming the Galatians in a couple ways. It's important. Paul says, you were running well. And then as we move down into verse 10, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. Both of those verses are reflecting that Paul is affirming to the Galatians that they're already believers. He's saying it elsewhere in the scriptures. Did you receive the Spirit because you believed or because you behaved? Only Christians have the Spirit, so he's saying they had it. Here again, he's saying you were running well. What does he mean by that? Well, you were living your life. You had been set free. 
you had received Christ, you were living your life in a way that was commendable, appropriate. And even the other one that seems to make a little less sense, I, you know, I, I'm confident you'll take no other view. It's easy to assume Paul's kind of being arrogant there, saying, look, by the time I'm done with my argument, there'll be no question left. That's not really what he's saying. What he's saying is that this is the truth that is revealed by God, and that any believer who has the Holy Spirit, as they think about what Paul is saying, is not going to come to any other conclusion. And Paul, by saying, I'm confident that you will not come to any other conclusion, is not saying that you're going to see how right I am, but Paul is saying, I know you are believers. I know that you are loved by God. I know that you love God. And because that's true, when you think about it, I have great confidence that you're going to understand what it is that I'm fighting for. And Paul, therefore, is reminding us through the Galatians that even Christians, even Christians whose lives are going well, even Christians who are faithful and are rejoicing in the grace of God, can fall off the path. One of the most famous plays in college football history took place in the 1954 Cotton Bowl between Rice and Alabama. In the middle of the second quarter, Rice, with a one-point lead, had the ball inside their own five-yard line, 95 yards away from their end zone. And they handed the ball to their All-American halfback, Dickie Magel, who took the handoff, made a move, cut to the outside, was able to outflank the Alabama defense. And by the time he got to about the 20, he had outrun everybody on the Alabama defense because part of the reason he was an All-American was his speed and his agility. So here he is, starting 95 yards away, now about 80 yards away, but there's nothing between him and his goal. And he's running. Nobody on Alabama's team is fast enough to catch him. He was certain of that. And so he's to the 30, and he's to the 40, and he's to the 50, and he's leaving the Alabama defenders in the dust. And then as he crosses midfield, something unexpected happens. He has his knees cut out from under him to the point that he flips up and his feet are in the air and he is tackled with an almost picture-perfect tackle from out of nowhere. An Alabama player named Tommy Lewis didn't catch him from behind. He wasn't even in the game. He came off the sideline from the 42-yard line because he didn't want to see this guy score a 95-yard touchdown. And he came out, leveled the tackle, and if you watch the YouTube video, he just gets up and he just walks back to sits on the bench. <laughs> and it is on YouTube, so you can check that out. He was asked later, what would possess you to do this? And he said, I just have too much Alabama in me. And you probably have to ask Ben Robertson about that, but that's a whole other issue. And so this guy who was running his race, running well, no obstacles, nothing in his way, from out of nowhere, he has his knees cut out from under him, and he is down, he's off track, he's not in the end zone. Paul's saying something like that to us, even if we're running a good race. Now, the Galatians had been knocked down. But even if you are here today, and you are one who understands that your only hope is grace, and you rejoice in God, Paul's reminding us that no matter who we are, we must recognize that there are things that will come in this life from a surprise from out of nowhere that will knock our feet off of the firm foundation and knock us out of the race. The referees gather together for about five minutes, having never seen anything like this before. 
And they awarded Rice the touchdown, credited Dickie Magel with a 95-yard run on the way to a record-setting day. He ran for like 270 yards that day as Rice won the game. And even that, as I was reminded by Rob, the first service, is a picture of our lives. Because we are granted something that we do not earn when we trust in the promise of the gospel of Christ. We need to be wise, but when we're clinging to the promise, even when we get knocked off of our game, when we don't measure up, fair or unfair, it doesn't change the results. And Paul is saying, look, stand firm, but be aware there are things that will sidetrack you, blindside you in this life. Finally, Paul moves on we find the answer to the question I asked. Why would Paul speak with such intensity and such passion and such offensiveness? I mean, the offensiveness is, is really quite stunning. I mean, think about it. As Paul's talking about those who would come off the bench and knock you off your feet, verse 11 and 12 say this. Brothers, if, if I, well, verse 12, I wish those who would unsettle you, I wish those who would knock you down, knock you off course, they would just go emasculate themselves. I'm sure he means that in the nicest possible way. <laughs> but it's beyond my ability as an expositor, as a Bible student, to tell you what way that actually is that would in any way sound nice. It's an expression of Paul's passion, not only for this doctrine, but for the people who he is speaking to. And he's willing to offend and even alienate for a time a people for a reason. Because he loves them. Which is what Paul expresses as the third point. Some of you have been uncomfortable through this series, and I hope that's good. Renovation is uncomfortable. But it's beautiful when it's over. Some of you may feel that I picked on you underestimated your goodness, and I don't. Most of you, possibly all of you, are far better people than I am. I don't know your heart, but I know mine. But I'm willing to risk you're getting angry with me and not showing up to hear the rest of the story with the hope to give you what Paul is also instructing. Because Paul says, not only do we stand firm in the freedom that we have, and not only do we need to be aware that people will knock us off of our freedom, but in verse 13, he reminds us that we are called to use our freedom for the sake of others, because of love. For you were called to use your freedom as an opportunity, not to, uh, uh, you were, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love to serve one another. In other words, the whole emphasis that Paul keeps making on stand firm in your freedom is not so that we create a bunch of complacent, selfish jerks who will declare, I don't have to do that because I'm set free in Jesus. Paul makes clear in this particular section of scripture, not just in this verse, but in Galatians 5, 6, that the essence of Christian love, freedom, is 
to be free so that you can love others. Now, it sounds like that's an addition. Like, believe and then love people. But go back to Galatians 5, 6, which is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. And that could be for teetotaling, unteetotaling. It could be for any, anything that we would put in there. The only thing that counts, when you say the only thing, that means the only thing. The only thing that counts is faith that works itself through love, or the faith that expresses itself in love. See, Paul is not saying it's faith and love. He's saying the very nature of the gospel, when we understand how we are loved, produces love. The very essence of our freedom creates us, compels us to become a people for others, to love them, to serve them. In a very literal sense, what Paul is saying here is you have your freedom not so that you can be selfish and just comfortable, but what Paul says here is stand firm in your freedom and use your freedom to become a slave to other people. Where does he say that? Well, the word he uses here love and serve other people. The word serve is the same word, same root in the Greek, doulos, as the word for slave. He's just turning it. He's changing it. He's saying, you who have been set free, who have everything that you need and the given from God, you're free and you don't need to worry. But the nature of what you have received also begins to sprout in you and you will therefore love others. It's the uniqueness of the power of the gospel, the uniqueness of genuine Christianity. A couple weeks ago, I was in a conversation with several people. Uh, Preston Clarkson was part of that. We were just talking about different world religions. And then this, what happens when people take their religion seriously and become more and more radical in the declarations of their faith? And we see it all around us. When people become more and more radical in their faith, they take it more seriously and they grow deeper in it. Inevitably, in every world religion, it moves the people away from people who are not like them. They begin to have an us versus them mindset because I keep the rules, you're not keeping the rules. The only original religion that's not true of is Christianity, which in a very radical way says the more you take it seriously, the deeper you dig into the meaning of our faith and what God demands of us, it doesn't isolate from us from other people, but the gospel, when we take it more seriously, it actually compels us to become a people for others. We are free from worry about rejection from them. We are free from being, you know, getting cooties from them like we did in sixth grade. We are free from anything because Christ has set us free and he is our all. And because the nature that secured that for us is love, and that love is now dwelled within us through the message of the gospel that begins to take root, it causes us to open our eyes. And because we love those who are around us, we begin to serve even as we have been served. And Paul's focus here in particular is in the church. And he summarizes at the end, I'm not going to spend much time on this because it's, it's not the purpose here, but he does describe a very common problem that we see in churches. In verse 15, he says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. See, what he's saying is what happens is when churches begin to focus or Christians begin to focus on whatever their list is, whatever the rules are, whatever they want to be known for, anything other than the gospel alone, it divides people in the church. They begin pointing. You're not as concerned about the poor as you ought to be. Oh yeah? Well, you're not as concerned about God because you're not in my theology class. Oh yeah? And, and it just becomes an oh yeah. Now, sometimes we're very nice about it and we live together in a lack of unity, but inevitably it drives us apart and causes us a split. And Paul's saying, be very careful of that. 
Because anything other than the gospel will drive you apart. Be very careful about what you're saying. Because otherwise you're going to devour one another. But the radical nature of the gospel actually frees you to become a slave to the very people that you might disagree with. Who may not deserve it. To anybody who's like us, who received the love of Christ that we didn't deserve, don't continue to earn. And we continue to, if we could forfeit it, we would forfeit it. We are free to love others with no fear of failure, rejection, or anything because the gospel sets us free to love others. And Paul says it so seriously. This law is so important that he uses the, 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 the mixed metaphor here. as use your freedom to become a slave, which means, according to God, we owe it to one another. And it's not an additional work. It is the reality of the gospel. To the extent that that's not true of my life is an evidence of the fact that I don't understand the gospel or I'm not considering it. So we come back to the question, what possesses Paul to speak in the terms that he does is because he loves the people. He loves God, he loves Jesus and what he does for us. He loves the Galatians who are in danger of going back into slavery. And because he loves, he says what he needs to say and he demonstrates to us love is not a Hallmark card with flowery poetry. Love is a declaration of love and of hope and demonstrated in practical actions as we serve one another and it's not reserved for those who deserve it. That's the command. So I have two questions for you. Who is in your life you've invited to speak to you? Not just when you look like you're on the brink of an affair or there's reason to suspect you've given yourself back to an addiction. But when there is even the hint that you're measuring yourself on the basis of your performances as opposed to Christ. Have you invited anybody to speak to you? Because Paul says, we're all enslaved to one another. We owe it to you. You owe it to me. We owe it to God. The second question is, who do you love enough that you will speak truth in love, which is not the finger in the face, like I pretty much do in the past 10 minutes, it's just anyway, but uh, um, it may come in the form of a question. Bob, how are you doing? It's entering into the life and reminding one another that there is nothing that is greater than the gift that God has already given to us and anything we do only takes from that. When we are not reminded of that, it propels us out. I'm gonna wrap up with this story. Some of you may be familiar with the Moravian tradition. Count Zinzendorf gathered a crowd, a church that kind of met in his home, incredibly wealthy. They were a little weird, at least the German churches thought they were. But they were zealous and passionate and for the love of God, and the love of the nations. They were incomparable in their passion for global mission. In fact, the church actually closed down in its original form because of their passion for mission. Every one of the membership left town to go on the mission field. Some of them even chose to go to closed countries that would not let them in to put themselves into slavery. They sold themselves as slaves or indentured servants and worked under somebody else's authority for the very reason to live there, to demonstrate the love of Christ in the hopes that the people that they encountered 
would be able to see in their lives and hear from their words the beauty of the freedom that comes in Jesus Christ. It seems incredible. In one sense it is, I'm not suggesting we ought to close down, but if we are going to close down, that would be a nice way. No, it's the same God and the same gospel that we have that propelled them. And you don't need to sell yourself into slavery and go to the ends of the earth. You can do it for one another. You can do it for those who are neighbors in need. You can reach the internationals in this community or some segment. You can go on short-term trips. But the gospel, as we understand it, will not leave us to simply feel good about ourselves. It will turn our eyes outward because we're secure in who we are. May God grant us that kind of faith that shows itself in love for his glory and the joy of any people we encounter. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul's passion. Thank you for the grace of Christ that we undervalue and sometimes devalue. Help us to believe and to value and set us free not only to love, but to experience the joy that we desire that comes through freedom and loving others. Lord, shape us to be a people that are a reflection of Jesus, that in us the world will see him. We pray in Christ.